This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory by David W. Blight. This is a fascinating look at one of the most pivotal periods in American history, the era of Reconstruction after the American Civil War. As I said last week, I think there's a lot about Reconstruction that explains where the United States is in terms of race relations today, so this book really is very timely. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 345, Blackness in Japan, part 3. By 1919, it was pretty indisputable that Japan was among the great powers of the world. It had a growing colonial empire, the hallmark of any great power during this time, stretching from its zone of influence in southern Manchuria down to the Micronesian islands it had seized from Germany. It had an alliance with the United Kingdom, the world's preeminent power even after four years of grueling war. And most importantly, it was one of two nations to come out of the chaos of World War I indisputably better off than it went in. Japan had not taken the devastating losses in manpower or material that European powers like France or Britain had. It did not see its government implode the way the monarchies of Russia and Germany did. Indeed, the Japanese experience of World War I was more than anything about getting rich, with Japan acting as a creditor, extending loans to the other Allied powers, loans the Allies mostly used to buy supplies for the war effort from who else but Japan. The only nation that had as good of a wartime experience, as weird as this is to say, is the United States, which of course also loaned millions of dollars to the Allies, sold them supplies, and then showed up in the last year of the war to break a metaphorical chair over Germany's head and seal the whole deal. So it's fair to say that the Japanese delegates who went to represent their country at the peace treaty ending World War I in Versailles, France, were feeling pretty good about where the empire was at. Sure, there were some setbacks, most notably when the other major powers rebuffed a Japanese proposal to add the following language to the charter of the newly formed League of Nations. Quote, the equality of nations being a basic principle of the League of Nations, the high contracting parties agree to accord as soon as possible to all alien nationals of states, members of the League, equal and just treatment in every respect, making no distinction either in law or in fact on account of their race or nationality. One thing I hadn't actually realized until now this amendment actually did get a majority of votes of potential signatories to the treaty, 11 out of 17 nations. But the presiding officer of the negotiations, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, 
noted that there was, quote, stiff opposition to it, despite the fact that nobody actually voted against this language. All the other votes were abstentions. So he unilaterally decided that to get this particular clause inserted into the Treaty of the League of Nations would require a unanimous vote. Wilson's justification was that he did not want to alienate the British or their colonial substate Australia, whose government had just imposed a white Australia policy that was, well, more or less what it sounds like. But of course, this was also the same guy who screened the pro-Ku Klux Klan film Birth of a Nation at the White House and who segregated the federal bureaucracy in the United States, so clearly he was not without his own agenda. Anyway, moments like this one were, particularly in retrospect, a warning sign to some Japanese diplomats that despite how far Japan had come, and despite what seemed to be real acceptance of Japan as a major power, there were still ways in which white-dominated nations would never accept them as equals. It was, therefore, perhaps only natural for Japanese leaders and politicians who arrived at this point of view, that Japan would never be treated as an equal, to look elsewhere for allies, and, again, unsurprising that a few of those leaders turned to black Americans as one potential source of friends overseas. This week, we're going to continue to unpack the history of black-Japanese relations, Afro-Asian solidarity, to use a more academic term, in the 20s and the 30s. But before we do that, we have to consider the question that I think looms to mind almost immediately when we come to this topic. How sincere was any of this, really? I don't mean on the side of black people. Both Africans and black Americans clearly found themselves in straitened circumstances in the early 20th century. The former were still suffering under the violent rule of oppressive imperialism. Seriously, I cannot stress enough how violent European colonialism was in Africa. Just look up the Herero Genocide or the Belgian Congo for some of the more prominent examples. The latter, meanwhile, faced the specter of Jim Crow and racial terror, most horrifically exemplified in the barbaric practice of lynching, but also present in a myriad of other more subtle systems of oppression. In such circumstances, I think it's fair to say that anyone would look for allies anywhere they could find them, and for black people, Japan made a lot of sense. It was, after all, living proof that white people could be beaten at their own game. But what about on the Japanese side? This is where I think things get a bit more complex, most notably, of course, because of the natural comparison to Pan-Asianism. Pan-Asianism, to jog your memory, was one of the guiding intellectual currents of the Japanese Empire right up till its violent collapse in 1945. It was, simply put, the idea that all Asians should unite, or perhaps be united, in resisting the West and reclaiming Asia for the Asians. Except, of course, that there was way more to it than that. Because, of course, uniting Asia took the form of things like colonizing Korea and Taiwan, and attempting to forcibly assimilate the local populations, while simultaneously treating them as second-class citizens, the one thing guaranteed to never make them feel like they had any stake in Japan's empire, or cynically exploiting the resources of liberated areas to boost Japan's own economy, or forcibly locking liberated regimes into exploitative trade agreements designed to help provide Japan with captive markets to sell its goods. You get the idea. 
The reality is that while Japan's leaders talked a great game about Pan-Asianism, in practice, the whole thing was a cynical cover for the creation of what looked, for all the world, like a European-style empire with the transparent rationale of the civilizing mission or white man's burden replaced by a liberation mission. There were, of course, people in Japan who believed in a more genuine pan-Asianism. Miyazaki Toten, the longtime ally of the father of Chinese republicanism Sun Yat-sen, comes to mind pretty quickly, as did the Imperial Japanese Army veterans who defected to the Viet Minh after World War II and helped train and equip it. But they were not the leadership. I think it's fair to apply this same analysis to this idea of Afro-Asian solidarity. It seems fairly clear to me that the actual leadership of Japan never really thought of this in anything other than transparently exploitative terms, as propaganda to mobilize against the United States, or as a way to potentially develop intelligence and sabotage networks in American cities. At the same time, there clearly were Japanese nationals who did feel some kinship with black people, and who did take the idea of solidarity between the two groups seriously. Undoubtedly, that vision of solidarity did have a lot of issues still, chiefly in the form of embracing negative stereotypes around black people as inherently less civilized than Asians. Remember, the early Meiji period was dominated intellectually by people who unquestioningly embraced the idea that white European nations were the most advanced civilizations on Earth. Fukuzawa Yukichi, the most prominent thinker of this time, repeatedly advanced the idea that civilizations existed in a clear hierarchy, and that Europe was at the top, Africa was on the bottom, and Asia somewhere in the middle. While that kind of extreme Eurocentrism had started to die down by the early 20th century, it was not gone entirely, and the baseline assumptions about who was inherently more civilized very much remained alive. But this has all been a very abstract conversation so far. What does this actually look like in practice? Well, I'm going to key in on a couple of examples here to illustrate what I'm talking about. The first name to bring up is Hikita Yasuichi, a truly fascinating man who, I will be honest, I had never heard of before doing the research for this episode. I've not been able to find out much about his early life. All I know is that Hikita was born in Japan, but came to the States in 1920 to study English, completing his high school education in Michigan and then doing a year of study at Columbia. Thus armed with a very polished command of the English language, he settled into life in interwar America. However, rather than choosing to move among the circles of the country's white upper crust, Hikita deliberately cultivated a close relationship with leaders in the black community. He was, by all accounts, an enormously charming guy, well-spoken and very animated. He also knew how to speak effectively to his audience without even saying a word. One of the things that comes up a lot in descriptions of any social event he attended was his choice of companion. In high society events, so I am told, having not been invited to many, one usually attends accompanied by someone of the opposite sex. Hikita would, at any event he attended, regardless of whether it was predominantly black or predominantly white, always invite a black woman as his companion, 
a very clear statement at a time when social events were still either legally or de facto very segregated. Nor was this the only example of his effectiveness in sending a message with his actions. One of Hikida's other trademark moves was, whenever he went somewhere with segregated accommodations, to always make use of the Jim Crow accommodations for black people even when he was not required to do so by law, said race laws being a bit inconsistent in how they applied to Asians. Again, this action sent a clear message. If you're going to make me choose who I'm with, I know which side is in the right. It is small wonder, then, that Hikide Yasuichi quickly found himself a very popular man among the African American community. What did he do with this popularity, you ask? Well, he started preaching a message, and a simple one at that. Tokyo is your friend. Hikida became a prominent exponent of the idea that Japan was the champion of justice for non-white peoples around the world, including the United States. He would speak on this subject for the next two decades and forge relationships with black leaders around the United States, most prominently with W.E.B. Du Bois. Their letters back and forth are actually digitized and available online in an archive hosted by the University of Massachusetts if you're curious to see more. Now, this story pretty immediately raises a question. Was Hikita doing this because he genuinely believed in it, or was he being paid by someone, possibly the Japanese government, to foment dissent in the United States? It's unclear one way or another. It's certainly not impossible that he was a government agent, and there are intriguing bits of circumstantial evidence. For example, the pace of Hikita's speeches and frequency of his public appearances started to pick up in the 1930s, as tensions continued to grow between Japan and the United States. Nor was he the only Japanese national building relations with the black community. He was, in fact, one of several, numerous enough that President Roosevelt actually was personally briefed on the issue of a, quote, small number of Japanese nationals forming a fifth column on the part of the Japanese among the black community, unquote. However, that's very circumstantial evidence, pretty thin to build any case on, and it's equally plausible that Hikita looked at the horrible treatment of black people in the United States, particularly, though not exclusively, in the American South, and decided to try and do something about it. I mean, Hikita literally wrote a book on black people in America for a Japanese audience, unfortunately I was only able to find the table of contents, where he spends a great deal of time talking about, for example, the horrors of lynching, and frankly, even just knowing a bit about those horrors, I can see how they set up a pretty clear division between who is in the right and who is in the wrong in the interwar United States. Anyway, Hikita was one example, but he's not the only one, and we'll talk about some others next week as well. One of the things that a lot of pro-Japan boosters in the black community tried to do, including Hikita, was to bring as many black leaders to Japan as possible, the idea being to show them a society that was in fact dominated and run by non-whites in order to demonstrate simply the possibility that that represented. There are many examples of this, far, far, far too many for me to list here in fact, so I think I'm going to go with one of the ones I find most interesting, which revolves around baseball. Now, I'm not going to do a super deep dive on this because I actually do want to do a full episode on it at some point, but it's also just too interesting to not mention here. 
If you're at all familiar with the history of baseball in the United States, you know the sport was segregated for a lot of its history. It was only in 1945, with the signing of the legendary Jackie Robinson, that segregation in the major leagues finally started its slow march into the dustbin of history. But there were still professional black baseball players before 1945. They played in segregated leagues known to history as the Negro Leagues. These leagues, despite the conditions of segregation they operated under, produced some truly spectacular players. I mean, hell, Satchel Paige is still considered one of the best pitchers ever. And in addition to representing a collection of tremendous athletes who overcame a lot to get where they did, the leagues have another important role in history. They helped spark further interest in baseball in Japan. The sport of baseball had existed in Japan since the Meiji era. We've covered this history before. By the 1920s, baseball had a devoted following in Japan, but a purely amateur one. The country wouldn't have any professional teams until 1934. Baseball was growing, but it was not a national pastime in Japan in the way it has since become. Enter one Zenimura Kenichi, a Japanese national who lived much of his life in the United States and who was instrumental in helping raise the profile of baseball in Japan. Zenimura was born in Japan in 1900, but moved to Hawaii as a young man, and from there to California. He eventually became the manager of an all-Japanese team, the Fresno Athletic Club. One of the teams the FAC played against was called the LA White Sox, a mostly black team, the only exception, a Japanese-American second baseman. The team was managed by a black former railroad worker named Lonnie Goodwin. Zenimura appears to have been the one to come up with a pitch to Goodwin to go on tour with him in Japan, both as a way for the two clubs to make some extra cash, and as a way to help boost the popularity of baseball in Japan more generally. And the tour proved a smashing success. The games drew impressive crowds, particularly considering that the Japanese teams playing against the Americans were either amateur or college-level teams. Lonnie Goodwin's team proved nigh unbeatable. He assembled a group of all-star black players from the Negro Leagues under the name the Philadelphia Royal Giants, and no, I have no idea why he picked that name, and not even sure there were any players from Philadelphia on the team. They did good, though. The team went 23-1 in a series of matches around Japan. And that one, apparently, was a very close game that went the way it did because of a blown call by the umpire, not that anybody's counting. For the Japanese players who interacted with Goodman's all-black squad, the overwhelming feeling, after the fact, was that the Royal Giants handled themselves extremely well. Many Japanese baseball fans would, in later years, compare the Royal Giants tour to the 1934 American tour of Japan, where a group of all-stars led by Mo Berg, Lou Gehrig, and of course Babe Ruth toured the country. The 1934 tour was apparently marked by a fair bit of showboating. The American players were gracious to some Japanese fans, though they were apparently inconsistent about it, but also tended to treat Japanese players pretty disdainfully. Here's a quote from Japanese baseball historian Sayama Kazuo on the subject. Quote, the white players treated their opponents and the fans with contempt, running up scores against inexperienced opponents and insulting their hosts, both on the field and off. One rainy day, Babe Ruth played first base holding a parasol. 
Lou Gehrig wore rubber boots. Al Simmons laid down in the outfield grass while a game was in progress, unquote. By comparison, one Japanese player who played against both the White All-Stars and the Royal Giants would later recall, quote, We were extremely pleased to find that the Royal Giants did not take an overbearing attitude. Instead, they were quite gentlemanly. Unlike our games with the Major League players, we had an excellent match, and this heightened our love for the game of baseball itself, unquote. The Royal Giants players, meanwhile, seem to have been very impressed by the reception they got around Japan, not to mention the fact that they also got an audience with the recently enthroned Showa Emperor, a.k.a. Hirohito, who presented them with a trophy commemorating their visit. Frankly, a pretty clear contrast from the way black people were treated in the United States. Nor was this the end of this particular cultural exchange. In 1936, a team called Dai Tokyo, which would eventually merge with several other clubs in the 50s to become what's now the Yokohama Bay Stars, signed a black pitcher named James Bonner to play professionally. Bonner, unfortunately, had some issues with nervousness and didn't play too well and was cut after the season ended, but the very fact that he was able to play professionally ten years before Jackie Robinson, well, something like that could and did say a lot, about cultural attitudes towards black people in Japan versus the United States. I could go on in this vein for a little bit. Honestly, there were straight-up anti-lynching protests in Tokyo in the 1920s, which is pretty remarkable, but I want to move the story along, and I do think you're getting the idea. Even if the government's protests about caring for black Americans were nothing but show, they were a good show, and it seems at any rate that average Japanese, even having absorbed some racial ideas from the West, were willing to treat black people as equals to a greater degree than American whites were on average. But before we move on, one quick question I imagine is coming to a lot of your minds. We're spending a lot of time here talking about relations between the African American community in the USA and Japan, but there are lots of black people in the world who don't live in the United States. So what gives? Well, that's a very astute observation. Of course, in Africa, there weren't a lot of independent black governments to work with. After the European rush to divide up the continent in the 1800s, only Ethiopia and Liberia remained as independent states run by black people themselves. And arguably, Liberia was more of a U.S. client regime than an independent state, but that's another story. Japan did make some serious inroads in Ethiopia, particularly once Ethiopia joined the League of Nations in 1923. The countries developed a strong economic relationship, with Japan selling industrial equipment and weapons to Ethiopia, including literally millions of surplus rifles from the Russo-Japanese War, in exchange for cotton and food. Political relations were equally friendly. In 1932, the two countries exchanged envoys, with the Ethiopian delegation being received directly by Emperor Hirohito. Also, apparently they gave him some lions in the bargain, which ended up in the Ueno Park Zoo, so that's pretty cool. However, when it became clear by the mid-1930s that Italy had set its sights upon conquering Ethiopia, the Japanese leadership made the decision to abandon its relationship with the country. Essentially, the military leadership decided alliances with European powers were more important, 
and the civilian leadership either agreed or saw little opportunity to stop the Italians and was thus unwilling to try. So Japan stood by and watched in 1935 as Italy invaded and eventually subjugated the country. What about the rest of the black diaspora? After all, the United States is not the only place with a substantial black population. And that's certainly true, but frankly, I haven't really been able to find anything in terms of an attempt to build bridges with those communities on the part of either civil society in Japan or the Japanese government. And maybe that could be read cynically, as could Japan's abandonment of Ethiopia. Proof that, just as with Pan-Asianism, solidarity was really more about being able to exploit relationships that were strategically useful to the Japanese government than anything else. But that's not the only reading. One could just as easily say that of course America in general was at the forefront of Japanese concern, considering both America's growing prominence as a world power in the 20th century, and the fact that it was really the only major power in the Pacific besides Japan, not to mention the fact that both countries were deeply economically entwined and linked by sizable Japanese diaspora communities in the states and its territories like Hawaii. By the same token, the decision to abandon Ethiopia to Italy was, of course, cynical realpolitik. It was also, however, the only real option on the table. After all, Japan was not really in a position to go to war to protect Ethiopia. By the 1930s, the relationship between Japan and the black community in the United States was at a crossroads. On one hand, Japan's status as a great power, and thus a useful international ally, was stronger than ever. On the other hand, Japan's pursuit of imperial expansion in China starting in 1931 made the idea of the Japanese Empire as a champion of the equality of non-white peoples a little harder to stomach. After all, how can you champion equality by building an empire of your own? No less a figure than W.E.B. Du Bois himself ran square into this contradiction. In the 1930s, Du Bois was one of several prominent Americans who became increasingly interested in the plight of China. He even visited Shanghai in 1936. That trip made quite an impression on him, in particular one occasion where he saw a young white boy of about four years old order a group of older Chinese men out of his way. Those men, without protest, obeyed the boy in a scene that apparently struck Du Bois, not without justification, as straight out of the Jim Crow-era American South. But of course, Du Bois was also an admirer of Japan, which was in the midst of trying to dismantle the one regime which seemed capable of trying to restore China to power and respect, the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek. Du Bois never seems to have been able to square this mental circle. He condemned Japan's invasion of China, but maintained throughout the 1930s that America, Britain, and the other Western powers were a far greater threat to Chinese sovereignty than Japan was. As late as 1939, he penned an editorial which stated, quote, The preservation of the color bar has been erected into a cardinal principle of modern civilization. Its preservation is threatened today principally by Japan, then by India, then by the Negroes of the United States and West Africa. Japan has attacked the legend of invincible Europe and of a white race of unapproachable ability. Nothing that Europe and Europeans have done, but Japan is doing nearly as well, and sometimes better, unquote. 
While Du Bois seems to have had a real fondness for China, viewing its long history as proof of what non-white peoples were capable of accomplishing, he was harshly critical of Chinese nationalists who viewed Japan as a greater threat to their country than the United States. He was convinced, it seems, that white people, especially American whites, held Chinese in not much higher esteem than they did black people. And to be fair, given moments like the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was not abolished until the 1940s, he was not totally unreasonable in thinking that. Less understandable, I think, is Du Bois's decision to not only visit Shanghai, but to visit Japanese-occupied Manchuria, and to praise Japan's client state of Manchukuo. By the time Du Bois had arrived in Asia, he'd already reconciled himself to the idea of Manchukuo as a Japanese puppet state. After all, as he noted, if Japan was going to lead non-white peoples around the world, it was going to need access to raw materials of its own to compete with the empires of the West. But during his visit to Manchuria, chronicled in a series of editorials and published in a black-run newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier, he treated Manchuria through eyes I'd call disturbingly utopian, honestly. Here's a selection of quotes assembled by one of the most fantastic scholars on black history and Japan, Reginald Kearney. Quote, Manchukuo is nothing less than marvelous. A lynching in Manchukuo would be unthinkable. Clearly this colonial effort of a colored nation is something to watch and know, unquote. Du Bois did not even want to consider the question of whether the fiction maintained by Japan that Manchuria was an independent state was true or not. What mattered to him was whether Japan was installing the kind of racial caste system that so marked European colonialism, and his conclusion, erroneous I would say, was that they were not. He wrote, quote, The people appear happy and there is no unemployment. Colonial enterprise by a colored nation need not imply the case to exploitation and subjugation it has always implied in the case of white Europe. Of course, that's all a load of crap. Du Bois was completely off the mark, and Manchuria was in fact an exploitative colony where land and resources were violently exploited from the natives, not to mention the horrors of things like Unit 731. Now, of course, Du Bois was not wrong entirely to state that Japan was not doing anything unusual in terms of how great powers operated, and it is true that American and British criticism of Manchukuo rang a bit hollow as those countries were still defending their own unequal treaty rights in China. But of course, even so, to uncritically replicate the propaganda of the Japanese Empire, and to defend the war between China and Japan in those same terms, which Du Bois also did by justifying the war as a product of Western imperialism to cut off Japan from markets and raw materials, well, one wonders how he could have missed so much. Perhaps it was simply because his Japanese hosts were trying so hard to convince him of the regard in which he, and by extension all black people, were held in Japan. Du Bois culminated his trip to Asia with a stay of several weeks in Japan itself, and there was treated to something of a hero's welcome, including a reception at the Imperial Palace and multiple banquets in his honor. Du Bois was, of course, a private citizen, not a diplomat, but he was aware, it seems, of how the Japanese viewed him, not as a one guy, one private citizen, but as the representative of America's black population. 
Du Bois was keenly aware that the reception he received in Japan was intended to send a message to American blacks, that the Japanese considered them friends and allies, and Du Bois, it seems, believed them. And I guess I can't say I totally blame him. Yes, logically, one imagines that he should have been able to see past all the pomp and fanfare and realize that he was not being shown the whole truth. But at the same time, you have scenes like this from his writing. Quote, On the last day, as I was paying my bill at the Imperial Hotel of Tokyo, a typical loudmouthed American white woman barged in and demanded service. In America, the clerk would have immediately turned to her, if not to wait on her, at least to apologize or explain. But not in Tokyo. The clerk did not wink an eye or turn his head. He carefully finished waiting on me and took time to bow with Japanese politeness and then turned to the American. When you've been treated as a second-class citizen your entire life, in your own home country, no less, how could something like this not stick on your mind? I think it's pretty clear that Du Bois was exploited by the Japanese government for propaganda purposes. We'll see that same exploitation of black communities next week during the lead-up to and the early days of World War II. But at the same time, one has to wonder... Du Bois was, I think, wrong to suggest that the Japanese government really cared about black Americans or racial equality more generally, except to the extent that those concepts could be weaponized politically. At the same time, I can't say I really blame him for buying it. Japan may not have been a real friend, but at the same time, were white Americans real friends? We'll continue to explore this theme next week, but for now, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patrons Kirsten Znikas, Heike Barnitzke, Dustin Hinckley, and Elton Z for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, go to the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part four.